0: You can't be everything to everyone. So you have to decide who you are as an organization, and that can be externally and internally. And the things that you offer to your employees should be aligned with the things that you and an organization say are important.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fintech Leaders Podcast, a show where we will learn from today's global leaders that will dominate the 21st century in fintech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armaza, and I'm a fintech venture capital investor. If you enjoy this conversation, I invite you to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Today, I sit down with Bryn Magnolti Rojas, co-founder and CEO of Habi, a prop tech company that is streamlining the traditionally opaque home buying process in Latin America. Founded in 2019, Habi has raised more than $100 million in equity from investors like SoftBank, Inspire Capital, Tiger Global, Homebrew, Clocktower, 8VC, and many more. In this episode, Bryn and I explore building Habi and a deep dive of the exciting prop tech revolution taking place in Latin America, the recruiting approach and why the initial employees at any startup are absolutely crucial, developing Habi's culture and why they decided the company's four key values should be in English rather than Spanish, Habi's secret data analytics machine, and how they've been able to scale to over 30,000 real estate pricings per month, fundraising lessons for entrepreneurs, and a lot more. And now, I hope you enjoy this great episode of the Fintech Leaders Podcast with Bryn McNulty rojas So Bryn, welcome, and thank you for joining. I'm just excited to talk. How are you doing today? How's everything?
0: delighted to be here uh if you hear thunder or kind of a thumping in the background it's because there's a huge rainstorm so i apologize about that
1: it's all good it's all good um yeah i mean we we've had all the above i've had babies dogs uh parents everything everything so thunder is is the least of our concerns <laughs> so so Brit, let's uh let's hear a bit about habby love to kind of dig a little bit deeper in, into, you know, the company origins. How did you get started? Right. And maybe you can tell us about uh, the company. What, what do you do?
0: Sure. Uh, so at Hobby, we are a data-driven residential real estate platform whose mission is ultimately to unlock access to liquidity and to information for hundreds of millions of Latin Americans. We do that through a variety of products and the ultimate vision is to have, as I said, a full service platform, Today, we are really focused on the iVine product, uh, as well as a free evaluation tool that we offer to homeowners in the cities in which we operate. Uh, and we're now piloting a couple of other products and services, which we can go into on another date. But the ultimate goal really is to allow people to access all of the wealth that is trapped in this very liquid housing market, uh, in a market that, as I'm sure you know, in Latin America, there's no MLS between Colombia and Mexico it can take about 10 months to sign a PSA to sell a home. Uh, it can take six to eight months to close and get paid for that home, especially if the buyer is using bank financing. It can be an arduous, painful, slow process for buyers to get access to home financing. Uh, every piece of that uh, home transaction cycle is really, really difficult. Uh, and that's in the transaction space. If you think about just kind of general access to liquidity, 80% of the homes or an estimated 80% of the homes between Colombia and Mexico have no LTV on them whatsoever. So if you think about what that means, you have about $750 billion of wealth that families can't access because it's in homes that then take 10 months to sell uh, or and longer to get paid for. Uh, and then people's other options for getting liquidity is getting a consumer loan and rates are not as low as they are in markets like the United States or other less appealing options.
1: Was this your... Original vision, and I ask because you often talk to entrepreneurs who pivot mm-hmm. once, you know, two times, maybe more, mm-hmm. until they find product market fit and then start scaling. Uh, is this your original vision, or did you have to adjust uh, along the way?
0: Pretty close to our original vision. Uh, I think the reason that we started in the iBuying space as our first product when we launched just before the end of 2019 was we viewed it as a very effective wedge into building this full service platform and being able to establish ourselves in a position in the market that could help change habits. We felt that stepping in as an intermediary, um, as a broker or a marketplace, would be a lot harder to change the entrenched habits and lack of trust that existed in the ecosystem. Uh, But ultimately, this was always really our goal, to build out and understand home prices so that we could empower consumers in the largest financial decisions of their lives, um, and in doing so, just reduce a lot of the frictions that exist between all of the players in the ecosystem. So buyers, sellers, owners, renters, as well as brokers, builders, and banks. Uh, and we want to just kind of be the platform that facilitates the way in which all of those groups make decisions, to do their jobs, or live their lives.
1: So let's talk about PropTech, because uh, PropTech, I think just a couple of years ago, it was uh, in the low single digits uh, when it comes to VC investment, right? But it's it's catching up, mm-hmm. uh, certainly catching up to other sectors, and specifically propTech in Latin America, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it feels like these are the early days. I mean, we've talked to, for example, Brian Rekoff. I, I interviewed him, and he's one, yeah. of, the, we know yeah, he's one
0: know. of the he's one of the OGs great-
1: in in propTech, right? But. Uh, so maybe tell mm-hmm. us about the space today, and because you you operate at this moment. Correct me if I'm wrong. Two markets, right? Colombia and Mexico. Yeah. But first, tell us about the space, right? And then we can talk maybe a bit of, about the challenges of you know building a prop tech business in in Latin America.
0: Sure. Uh, so I think just really understanding the opportunity in prop tech in general, as you see the evolution and kind of excitement about prop techs in the United States, uh, and then thinking about it for a region like Latin America, you just have to understand kind of the magnitude of the asset class. And by the way, when I talk about PropTech, I'm always going to talk about from the residential side, just because I'm not as well-versed in the anything in the commercial space. But it is of such significant magnitude that you can understand why you have all of these scaled businesses in markets like the United States that are addressing even one pain point of a cycle that actually works pretty well. Like access to financing in the United States is pretty good. The MLS uh, functions effectively. Peer-to-peer trust is not that low. And even then, kind of the status quo has a really low NPS, if you would. Like people just don't enjoy buying and selling houses. And then you look at a market like Colombia or Mexico, and the pain points are astronomically higher in every aspect of the concept of buying, selling, renting, owning, financing, insuring, etc., cetera. Uh, and there's just so much more to be done. I think part of the reason that there's so much excitement about Latin America is because of the difference in terms of the pain points and the fact that the lack of information in the market, in that there's no MLS, governments don't really have reliable data in the used home space, just means that there is a bigger problem to be solved and potentially much more ability to build out like a one-stop full-service solution and have like be able to harness the information in really wonderful ways and it's not kind of publicly available where every player has access to the same things but even as I said just to give you a sense of the of the magnitude like Colombia the market value of homes is 240 billion dollars in Mexico 830 billion dollars like those are incredibly large markets especially coming from Colombia where people think, oh, you're not Brazil or Mexico, you're too small of a market. Like we could have built a really scaled multi-billion dollar business in Colombia alone. Sebastian, my co-founder and I opted to move into Mexico with the vision of serving all Spanish speaking cities of over a million people because of that ultimate mission which is really about unlocking access to liquidity information for hundreds of millions of people rather than just kind of like checking the box, building the business and owning the most of it that we could. That is not why we set out to build this. But anyway, I think that it's clear that there's so much to be done. Residential real estate transaction process is absurdly archaic, even in markets like the United States. Latin America is much, much further behind. You can leapfrog some of the interim solutions that existed in the United States. And the way in which now, for the first time ever, you can harness and leverage data if you're able to access it, build it, merge it, make it usable for use, to drive decision-making and product development, is kind of the perfect moment for the evolution of the industry.
1: Yeah. And how about, you know, we hear of Brazil passing multiple laws. They're actually helping fintech companies. Mexico famously passed the fintech law. There's open banking in the process coming up. That's on the pure fintech side. Yeah. How about on the prop tech side? Uh, where, where do you think uh, regulation is? Has that been a challenge? Is the regulatory environment actually favorable? Maybe tell us a bit about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'll talk more about Colombia just because that's where we have had more of our history of operations, Uh, but we feel really lucky to have had a wonderful relationship with the government in Colombia. I think for two reasons, one of which is we work with the vast majority of homes. We're focused on middle-class consumers. Uh, In Colombia, our target price points in terms of transactions are between about $20,000 equivalent and $150,000 equivalent. And... About, to give you context, like about 90% of the housing stock in the top five cities of Columbia is below $150,000 equivalent. So, and the government, as you can imagine, focuses a lot on both delivering new homes, but also making it easier for people in lower and middle income to be able to achieve either rental or, or home ownership. And... We provide information to uh, the Colombian government for used home prices for them to be able to leverage whatever information we put together so they can use it for policy making and decision planning. And we coordinated very closely with the Minister of Housing in the first ever pilot for a digital home transaction in the history of the country. We also executed the first ever digital transaction uh, and deed signing as well as home financing in the history of Colombia. So there's a real desire to work with companies like ours to move... Kind of the country forward and regulation forward in a way that I think is beneficial for all end users.
1: Understood, understood. Now, switching gears a little bit, let's talk about your leadership style. How many people in the company today?
0: We are about 400 people at Hobby today.
1: Wow. Okay. So it's not a, it's not a small company it is not. anymore, <laughs> right? Uh, so, first of all, how did you find, I guess, the, the initial employees and how important was that?
0: Yeah, I mean, the initial employees of any venture, I would say, are key to the success uh, of the company. And they're also those who determine the culture uh, and and how kind of the personality, I think, of the team will be going forward. But I mean, backing up, the reason any of this is possible is because I was really lucky to be able to partner with a world-class operator who understood Latin America, who was my partner, Sebastian Noguera, who had experience co-founding, launching, and running the largest online supermarket with operations in Colombia and Mexico, Mercado, and then he also ran the digital transformation at the second largest bank in Colombia. I would have never in a million years dreamed of trying to launch an operationally complex, regulatory complicated company in a market, which I didn't know, uh, without having such a wonderful partner like Sebastian. Sebastian really should be credited with hiring the initial team because he knew a lot of the best players in the market. Of course, I was by his side kind of deciding what roles were crucial for launch and vetting those people, but he sourced people that he knew and trusted and had seen before, and that was our founding team. And then we really put a lot of kind of responsibility on and or gave freedom to those leaders of different teams to build out the teams underneath them. And there you have a risk and or benefit of if you believe those first few hires are great culture carriers and are wonderful eyes for talent themselves, the company can build itself a lot more organically and you as a leader are not the one kind of defining every single person who comes in the door. And as you get bigger and bigger and bigger, that's hard. Like right now we're trying to figure out, we feel really lucky. I think the culture of hobby is extraordinary and it blows me away all the time how much people care about the company and how people feel that we live up to our values, et cetera. But it's definitely not due to me. I mean, I hope that I also live up to the things that we say that we will, but it's due to all of the interim leaders throughout the organization.
1: So you, you have an MBA. So do I, I mean, and a lot of the, I guess the, the lessons and the conversation in the MBA is around culture, right. Mm-hmm. And and building a, a strong culture in a company. And, and, you, you kind of have mentioned this, but how are you actively building that culture? And, you know, um, is this something you think about a lot?
0: It is something we think about a lot. It's something we think about a lot and it's something we try to make sure is being fulfilled and that people feel really happy. I mean, one of the things I learned in my MBA, which you probably did too, which I found to be very helpful, is you can't be everything to everyone. So you have to decide who you are as an organization. And that can be externally and internally. And the things that you offer to your employees should be aligned with the things that you and an organization say are important. And that can be with respect to the way the offices are organized. It can be with respect to the way you compensate people, other kind of types of perks. And all of those things should be in line with what you hope and claim and feel that the culture is. So... One of the ways that we kind of set out about doing it in the most thoughtful way that we could was probably six months or so into Javi, we asked our head of human resources to speak with a hand, like kind of do a survey, speak with a handful of the leaders and junior people in the organization and come up with what they all felt were the four values that drove the way we made decisions and who we were at Javi. And those are one, I mean, first of all... (laughs) They're actually in English, which is hilarious, and I suggested that they be in Spanish, and everyone (laughs) felt that they should be in English because we were going to be an international company. Uh, But anyway, one is I'm a window open and transparent, so really pushing this idea of honesty, true feedback, never kind of manipulating information, whether it's internal or external stakeholders, but uh, not falling into cultures of so much respect that you would not kind of push back up or down.
1: Which I think is crucial in in a culture like Latin America, right?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was something we were wary of because having been at a series of different institutions, and, and when I was in consulting at McKinsey in Bogota, I saw it at different, more traditional institutions as well, there was so much loss of value because people were not willing to push back on their superiors. And it was extremely deferential. Uh, and we wanted to make sure that people felt that Any good idea could get ahead and people should question and feel free to give honest feedback up and down. So that's the first one. The second one is I'm the customer's home. And at the end of the day, we are dealing with, as I mentioned earlier, the most significant financial decisions in people's lives. We never want anyone to feel that what we are doing is anything but the best for them and never should Anyone at Hobby feel that they will be compensated better or encouraged to do something that is better for the company than it is for the consumer, because that's very short-termist. Same thing goes for internal stakeholders. Like, we just want everyone to know that every other team is going to take care of you effectively. The next is I'm a master key, and that's really about empowerment and giving tools to everyone throughout the organization to solve problems, and people shouldn't be waiting for instructions, but we want proactive leaders no matter how long they've been at the firm or how senior they are, to be building towards something that we know is our common goal. And then the last is, I am the bell, but we make the sound. And in all of our offices, we actually have a a big cowbell that the sales team rings when a transaction is signed. And the concept behind that, as I'm sure you can imagine, is while that individual salesperson who signs the paperwork with the client is the one who rings the bell, the entire team is behind that, whether it's the data collection team, the pricing and analytics team, the paperwork team, the legal team, et cetera. Everyone has done things to make that transaction a possibility. So those are the the ways in which we define the company uh, in terms of kind of values. And then otherwise, I think we are extremely mission-driven in terms of this idea of always wanting to unlock liquidity information and that defines product rollout and the idea of offering this evaluation tool for free giving other pieces of information besides price to these people for free because in a market with no MLS where the majority of homes are not listed online, it's really meaningful for someone to get a sense of what their house is worth. And we wanted to do that for free because we felt that that aligned with our mission. The types of perks that we give for employees are very much about them being able to educate themselves. And we, our view is kind of like you come to hobby and you get to work on the most important complicated challenges of our lifetime in this space that can change the lives of hundreds of millions of people. Uh, we will give you tons of responsibilities. We will give you the opportunity to grow. We will give you the opportunity to build wealth. And you can learn not only in the jo- on the job, but we will pay for, we have two kind of knowledge platforms that will pay for people to take classes on. So we frame a lot of the way that we compensate people, whether base or for performance, with that kind of same mentality. And we promote people very regularly.
1: So you are both collecting and generating a whole lot of data, right? How are you acting on this data and actually integrating into your product suite? And I guess another way of asking it is, how are you listening to your clients?
0: Data is the foundation of hobby. And... That is another piece of how we think of our identity, and that's a big uh, focus of ours uh, in terms of the way in which we hire, the the allocation of team members, et cetera. And as you said, it, it is something that we spend a lot of time figuring out how to do, and I would argue that we are extremely differentiated in our capacity to execute on that concept. We have now opened five cities throughout two countries and began transacting in them with, uh, in the iBuyer business, extremely attractive margins, especially when you look at international comps. And that's because we understand market prices really well. We're able to go into markets that seem really opaque, set up partnerships with relevant players, manually collect data and or scrape any relevant data, merge it, clean it, make it available for use, and then our pricing team is able to interpolate among those and understand what's happening in the market with prices. We make over 30,000 pricings a month between the buying and the evaluation. And of the home offers that we make every month, the vast majority are actually made automatically. So that just gives you a sense of kind of the power that we've been able to build with through the leaders on our data and analytics team in running what you're saying, kind of this data machine that we feel drives our ability to offer these services to our clients. And then separately, like how are we listening to what the clients need? Obviously, when people come to us and they want to sell to Hobby, they either want to move or they need liquidity, and we're finding ways to give that to them. One of those ways is through the iBuying service. We're now exploring other ways in which to solve those needs for them, even if the iBuying service is not exactly the right solution for them. Uh, and then there are people who may want to sell their houses on their own, but they have no idea how to list their, like, what price at which they should list their home. They can come to Hobby and get a sense of that price for free. They can get a sense of what's been happening in the area, where have prices been moving, what else is for sale, things like that, which make them making their decisions a lot easier.
1: And where do you see the company expanding over the next few years? Are you are you thinking of you know I guess conquering the entire region? Are you thinking beyond Latin America? Maybe tell us. A, I'm sure you can't share everything, but <laughs> tell us a little bit.
0: I mean, we talked a couple of times about the this magnitude of residential real estate as an asset class and how much there is to fix, uh, even in the two markets in which we're in right now between Colombia and Mexico. Uh, So in the short term, we're really focused on opening up Mexico City, continuing to expand in in terms of uh, penetration, and number of services that we offer in Colombia, open up a couple of other cities in Mexico. We have a couple of other countries on our roadmap. And as I said, our of medium term vision is to be in all cities in Spanish speaking Latin America with over a million people. Uh, but beyond that, we'll have to see. I think there's a lot to build before we get there, but we do have extremely ambitious aspirations.
1: No doubt about that. I can feel it. <laughs> uh, so you I mean you've been you've been at it for multiple years. We definitely have listeners who are early in their entrepreneurial journey or who are actually thinking of making the, the leap, you know, actually going and building out something. What uh, reflections and lessons would you like to share with, with aspiring entrepreneurs?
0: Oh, man, there's so many. I guess it depends kind <laughs> of on the topic. But I uh, spoke to a group of Princeton students yesterday as part of this uh, leadership class, and they were asking me about things I wish i knew specifically in the fundraising journey, And I shared that there are moments in building a company that are really, really difficult and emotional. Like when we had just really started to get some momentum at Hobby and COVID hit and we were under pressure from some of our investors to cut overhead by 30%. At that moment, our only overhead effectively was payroll. And we had just convinced all of these people, really smart, amazing people who we really loved and were happy to have, to leave their steady jobs at the beginning of a pandemic and trust our vision and join hobby. So we were really loath to do anything there. Ultimately, what we ended up doing, by the way, is we offered everybody the option to anonymously vote to cut their salaries or to have us do salary cuts. 100% of the company opted to take salary cuts. And actually, a couple of the leaders came to us on their own and asked if Sebastian and I were taking larger salary cuts because they would do the same if we were. So we made, through, we made it through fine. We raised the A. We increased everyone's salaries even more. And I think it was a really meaningful bonding experience for the company. But anyway, that was really, really stressful for a good reason. As you go through this crazy kind of like fundraising cycle and you see everything in the news and there's all of this whirlwind of kind of PR, I think it's really important to just like keep your feet on the ground and take one foot in front of the other and just build. And know that dollars are green, no matter who they're from, and you just need to keep serving the ultimate client in the best way that you can, and things will go from there. Uh, And just only get really lost in the problems that matter and try to keep perspective on these other things that can drag you down, but they're not that relevant for the long term.
1: You mentioned fundraising. Are VCs actually helpful? (laughs) (laughs)
0: I think it's really a big range. Uh, Some are and some aren't. And I would say that at the very early stages, it's hard for anyone outside of the team to be that helpful. I feel extraordinarily lucky, as does Sebastian, that we love our board and we find our board to be very, very, very helpful. Genuinely, not just saying that. um, In a lot of, of decisions that we make, some... Related to personnel, some related to strategic direction, some related to just like on the ground kind of knowledge and connections like SoftBank in Mexico, for example, has been tremendously useful as we open up that market. But I think in the very early stages, it's really hard for people to to make a difference.
1: Brian, Last question before we let you go. When you think of your entrepreneurial journey, who comes to mind as some of the most consequential or actually, you know, influential people for you?
0: There are a lot of people who have helped us along the way. Uh, Actually, Brian, who you mentioned, was really helpful to us in the early days. Uh, There was a woman called Clelia Peters, uh, who used to be at Metaprop, who you may know in the prop tech space. I never met her, and I was connected with her through a mutual friend when I set out to raise my seed. I spoke to her and pitched her on the phone when I was driving from the airport into San Francisco. She kind of like believed in the vision thought that I seemed like I, I might be a good entrepreneur and really made a ton of very value-add, helpful introductions that helped us close our seed. And that was one of those things where you look back and you're like, it's so amazing that she went out of her way, not having any formal relationship with us, to make a big difference in the future of hobby and help unlock access to capital for us. So that was very, very cool. Um, and the other who I should really give a big shout out to is my husband, who is the one who connected me and Sebastian in the first place. Uh, he knew Sebastian from having worked together and they were really good friends. And he's kind of my other balance in the wild world of entrepreneurship and fundraising and everything that goes with it to Sebastian. <laughs> that's the honest answer, though. I'm sure that's not like the thing that people usually say in marketing.
1: No, that's that's awesome. And And I'm guessing also your husband is, I guess, your initial connection to Latin America.
0: Yes, yes. I did marry a Colombian, and that's what brought me down to Bogota.
1: That's what you also shared out with Brian. Yeah, (laughs) that's true.
0: And it was so funny. Honestly, I'm so happy for so many reasons that hobby worked out. But it was really funny when I graduated from Harvard, and I decided to kind of go on this adventure with Julio, my husband, and move to Bogota for a few years. So many people were like, I can't believe you're following your husband to Latin America. That's so ridiculous. You have an MBA. And by the way, I was joining McKinsey. It's not like I was going to go do nothing. And now this really wonderful, amazing, cool thing has come out of it. So it just goes to show that you should just take adventures in life and take advantage of things that come your way, because who knows?
1: I love it. Love it. Well, Brian, thank you for inspiring us. Uh, I've absolutely enjoyed this conversation. I have no doubt the audience will love it and you know, I'm going to be following very closely, Javi. And, and, you know, it's just uh, very exciting what you are doing and what's going on in the region.
0: Thank you. It was a lot of fun. And I hope I can see you in person soon.
1: Thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this great discussion with Bryn, one of the global leaders in the prop tech space. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spotify or wherever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. As always, I want to extend a very special thank you to the amazing editor, Rafael Ostria, for his amazing work behind the scenes. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armazza.